Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I'll be addressing Parashat Devarim, which is Hebrew for words. The opening line reads, Ele hadvarim asher diber Moshe el ko Yisrael, meaning, these are the words which Moshe spoke to all the Jewish people, to all of Israel. It's important to note that Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, is quite different than the previous four books of the Torah that we've covered thus far. Up until this point, the four books of Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikra, and Bamidbar are largely considered to be the word of God that Moshe received directly and then delivered to the Jewish people. Many parashot within these four books begin with a line such as, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, or something to that point. But here, at the beginning of Parashat Devarim, which introduces us to a new book of the Torah, it's clear that this is a different form of prophetic revelation. The first four books were dictated directly by God. Yet here we're hearing the voice of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, recount the journey of the Israelites in his own words. As I mentioned in a previous audio essay, the book of Deuteronomy is sometimes referred to as Mishneh Torah, meaning the repetition of Torah. This by no means renders it an inferior book. Sefer Devarim has its own virtues because the words of God are reaching a higher compatibility with the human mind. And this is a significant point because God's wisdom is actively being grounded, being brought down to earth through its translation. By way of Moshe, the Torah is passing through the interface of a human mind so that it can more easily interface with other human beings. In a sense, this book of the Torah is a divinely inspired work of human understanding. It is what set the precedent for later prophetic works and for rabbinic law, which is human-made, yet considered to be an extension of God's will. But from an ecological mindset, this book, this translation of God's revelation, is what will lead the Jewish people into the land, the land that they will cultivate, care for, and preserve as a place of their heritage. There's a term in Judaism, Baal Tshuva, or plural Baalei Tshuva, which translates to master or masters of return. It's used in a few different contexts, but it's most widely used to describe a Jew who's constantly working to return to God to their truest, highest self, through the medium of mitzvot and Torah study. The idea here is that any Jew can make this choice of their own free will and initiative, but on a deeper level, God is helping with this process by infusing the subconscious soul with divine revelation. In this respect, the sages draw a parallel between the book of Devarim and Tshuva, because of how it was relayed. They were Moshe's words, yet divinely inspired, and this encapsulates the mechanics behind the movement of a Baal Tshuva. 
the book of Devarim is characterized by subtle rebuke. Moshe begins the book by warning or reminding the Jewish people of their previous sins. He does so indirectly, though, by naming the places where those rebellions against God occurred. The traditional teaching here is that this is done out of love and respect for his fellow Jews, because if one is to rebuke a Jew, one should do so kindly and gently, so as to not inflict any unnecessary distress. Subtle rebuke is a technique to help assist another in initiating their own process of tshuva, of return to their highest self. And this is why the book of Devarim is characterized by rebuke. But it's important to note that Moshe's words are being delivered on the banks of the Jordan as the Israelites are about to enter Eretz Yisrael. In the land, their reality is to change. They were no longer going to be protected by the constant intervening of miracles. Instead, they were to work with the land and with material reality so as to uplift it, so as to refine materiality and make plain the sparks of holiness embedded within it. It's easy to think about tshuva as a vertical act, that such a movement conquers physicality by moving above it. But the task of material refinement is horizontal as much as it is vertical. Tshuva is a movement towards the land, into the land, of the land that helps to reveal the inherent goodness of the world. In this way, tshuva is a return to the realization that we have a moral responsibility to the earth and the forces which preserve its integrity. Aldo Leopold, in A Sand County Almanac, terms this moral responsibility a land ethic. Leopold describes this land ethic in a section of the book titled ethical sequence, and even referenced the Mosaic Decalogue, these are the commandments revealed to Moshe atop Sinai, as an ethic that deals with the relations between individuals. First, we have an ethical framework for human-to-human relations, and that, then, helps the individual integrate into organized society. He insists that, quote, There is as yet no ethic dealing with man's relation to land and to the animals and plants which grow upon it. And this is where he describes how a land ethic fits within the ethical sequence. But I would argue that this has been the whole trajectory of the Torah, that preserving the integrity and stability of the land is the ultimate Torahic principle. The Jewish sages teach that, quote, Every person should spend their entire life in tshuva, end quote. This is to say that one should strive to forever be moving towards the land, for the sake of the land, by conceptualizing ourselves in a constant state of return. The very literal and moral act of tshuva is actually enacting a land ethic, and the book of Devarim can help us envision this moral journey as Moshe delivers his rebuke on the banks of the Jordan. As I already described, Moshe begins the book of Devarim by mentioning the names of places where rebellions occurred, rather than naming the sins themselves. 
The implication here is that a land-based tshuva can begin by naming the places of our transgressions and verbalizing a metaphysical geography where our ancestors also rebelled. Places hold a history, and when we name a place, we are also interfacing with the geographical landscape of the mind that's inheritable. Makom, Hebrew for place, is a name of God. This is why when we read about Jacob's vision at Moriah, his primary encounter was not with a geographical location, but with God. The lesson is that our naming of places where we transgressed is an act that can initiate a healing of the moral geography, which, in turn, involves restoring the sparks of goodness in that physical location. It doesn't heal it entirely, it only introduces the potential for healing, which is the first step in a long process of return. But the modern world as a whole is beginning to recognize this concept. It's becoming proper custom in certain circles to introduce yourself and where you're from by naming your place of origin. If that place is land that was promised to native peoples, it's custom to acknowledge the indigenous territory. This is a subtle way to recognize the history of colonialism and to understand that naming sites of transgression can be transformative acts that work to heal metaphysical geographies. Perhaps this is why Moshe begins his rebuke by naming places. We have a responsibility to speak of and name troublesome histories. The exodus from Egypt was a liberation from a geopolitical landscape that was oppressive. We are asked to remember the history and legacy of that movement every day, and this can be a meaningful practice. The same thing is occurring on the east side of the Jordan, which is a demonstration of land-based tshuva. In closing, Rashi comments that Moshe translated the Torah into 70 languages, even though at the time this was not relevant to the Jewish people. He insists that this was for the sake of the Torah, because its holiness is retained through translation. This will come to serve Jews throughout the diaspora, who were separated from the land, and throughout the course of history because Torah will always be Torah, no matter what language you're studying it in. This idea is extended into the concept of Shivim Panim La Torah. This is the 70 faces of Torah, which holds that the Torah can be interpreted on many levels. There are, of course, the four interpretive levels of Pardes, but also that every Torah idea has 70 facets to it. As Chaim Miller states, quote, There is not one monolithic interpretation, there are 70 possible interpretations. End quote. Even though the Kabbalists take this a bit further, insisting that there are 600,000 possible permutations to every aspect of Torah, this teaches us about the power of plurality in thought. The Torah is an ethical mosaic that spans across time, space, and even language. In this way, 
It's inherently diverse, inclusive, and is designed to retain its integrity through its translation and through its transmission. Plurality of thought and plurality of being is an important approach for us to hold as we work to build an inclusive world that respects all cultures and all creatures. Even with translation and the diaspora, we can always tie the Torah to a land-based ethic, which should govern our relationship to place, no matter where we are. Thank you all for listening. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next week.